I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. This episode is a core group gathering uh, presentation I gave for our, our church plant, East River Church, which is starting out here in Batavia, Ohio. And the reason I'm sharing it, because it relates to men establishing their own houses. Uh, the topic is building with joy in dark days. And given the state of our nation here in the United States and the things that we're up against, I thought it actually would apply to the general theme of It's Good to Be a Man. So I hope it's helpful to you. It does kind of just come to an end because uh, part of the sermon uh, ended with some logistical stuff related just to our church, and I cut that, so it'll end all suddenly, but hopefully the body of it is helpful to you. There's a mindset I want us to have as we go in to the work we're doing now. Some of y'all have been part of church plants. I have been part of a church plant before, um, and they're challenging. And But the, the big thing is uh, church plants are like babies. The DNA is set early, and you want to get that stuff right. And so this, um, this will help you make a decision pretty quick, whether or not this is something you really want to double down on. So this uh, evening, we're going to be in Zechariah 4. Uh, the book is one of the five post-exilic books in the Old Testament, the other four being uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and uh, Malachi. Uh, those books, they cover the initial resettlement of Judah. And you might recall that the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into captivity. That's a big part of the Old Testament. Uh, the north was captured by the Assyrians, whereas the south was captured by the Babylonians. Judah in the south was taken captive in three successive campaigns. So it happens, it doesn't happen all at once. And sometimes you got to put that together as you're reading those books. Um, but after 70 years in exile, some of the Jews were allowed to return to Judah and rebuild. Uh, so that uh, post-exile return happens in three waves of people over 80 years. The first company returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel and inspired by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they eventually rebuilt the temple. And six years later, the second wave returns from Babylon under the leadership of Ezra. And then 14 years later, Nehemiah leads the third group and oversees the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, which is just one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, Nehemiah's amazing. Uh, but it's important to remember what these small companies of Israelites were returning to. And in Second Chronicles chapter 36, we find this description of what had happened to Judah. So this is verse 17. Therefore, the Lord brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on their young man or virgin, old men or affirmed. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with the fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. So Southern Kingdom was brutally depopulated. The temple was laid to waste. 
all its uh, defenses were destroyed and its wealth was carried away. So Judah was reduced to a pile of smoldering ashes and it remained that way for 70 years. Now, Nehemiah 1, we have another record of this. Uh, Nehemiah, it says, Now it happened in the month of Cheslev, the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there is in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, Nehemiah sat down and wept and mourned for days, and he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So its condition was that of a desolate land populated only by a handful of unprotected and often terrified uh, farmers due to being surrounded by enemies and not having any fortification to protect himself. It was a really sad situation. Uh, hence, Nehemiah and many like him mourned the desolation of Judah. But there was a reason to be hopeful. God himself had made a promise of restoration. And this is Jeremiah 33. And this is just a wonderful passage. Uh, I think this is, starts in verse 6, if you're, if you're taking notes. Um, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. I will heal them. And I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have uh, sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again, there will be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man, without inhabitant, without beast. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as it were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there will again be in this place, which is waste without man or beast in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks in the land of Benjamin in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. So, if you looked at the state of Israel with human or Judah with human eyes, there was no reason to be hopeful at all. Uh, it was a wasteland. Everything was destroyed. However, if you look at it through the eyes of faith with a heart that knows God keeps his promises, there was a reason to be optimistic. God said, that he would restore it, and, and he will, he does. So that's what these post-exilic books cover, the beginning of God's faithful restoration of Judah. Uh, Zechariah, what we're looking at today, takes place in the early years of the resettlement. They were able to lay the foundation of the temple in the first two years because it had been totally destroyed. Uh, but the construction paused for 18 years due to the Samaritans frustrating their attempts. There's a reason 
Jews really didn't like Samaritans in the New Testament. Um, Therefore, God speaks through his prophet to encourage and to encourage the Jews in their labors. And that's where we're going to pick up right now. So this is uh, Zechariah four, verse one. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, and its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on its, uh, with seven sprouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone, which shouts out grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. So this is the fifth of six visions given to the prophet Zechariah. Each of these visions were designed to bring both comfort and to also stir the Jews up to the work. So that's old saying about preaching. Preaching uh, comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. So you see that with the prophets as well. Uh, so it is here. Uh, Zechariah is given a vision of a golden lampstand and the two olive trees. And we know that there was a golden lampstand in the temple that they had started uh, to lose faith would ever be fully completed. So God shows him something uh, like what would be in the heart of a completed temple. But it's more than that, this lampstand. Uh, he says that there were seven sprout, uh, spouts excuse me, to the lampstand on the top, and also that there were two olive trees. So this is a lampstand which constantly supplied by abundance of oil. It's always burning. And then uh, Zechariah doesn't understand the significance. So the angel explains that this lampstand is a symbol of God's word to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Therefore, the lampstand, uh, it represents God's power at work in his covenant people. The lampstand is a symbol of the church, both in the Old and New Testament. In Revelation 1, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, like, or were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like the burnished bronze when he had been made to glow in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, 
He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in strength. So here, John's given this apocalyptic vision of Jesus, and in that vision, uh, he is in the middle of seven lampstands, which clearly represent these seven churches. So God dwells in his church, and his spirit is the source of its power. So anytime you see a spout or oil or anything, it's almost always connected uh, to the Holy Spirit. And so um, his, uh, this would call to mind what uh, Christ said to Peter. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. This is exactly what's being communicated to these discouraged Jews. These men are looking soberly at the reality of their situation. Their numbers were not large. They had no army. They had few friends. They were surrounded by many aggressive enemies. Their ability to protect themselves was greatly limited. And as they went down the pro and con lists, the cons were winning. But they forgot the greatest pro, which is God is for them. Remember uh, the great rhetorical question Paul asked in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. In the Exodus, God raised up a Jewish redeemer in the very house of the person who had ordered him to be killed, along with all the other Hebrew babies. God then proceeds to deliver the Hebrews and destroy the Egyptians in the most fantastic ways. But God's work sometimes, think of that. Right, he he's gonna the guy that he's trying to kill is the guy that leads to his destruction. That's how God works. He works in these crazy ways. Um, that Moses was raised up in the the very house of the man that wanted to bring an end to him. And so sometimes it's these fantastic, amazing ways, and sometimes it's much more subtle. And such was the case with the resettlement of Israel. Uh, Matthew Henry, who uh, was a very helpful pastor. But he has these words to say on it that I thought were worth reading. Uh, But they were brought out of Babylon into Canaan the second time by the spirit of the Lord of hosts, working upon the spirit of Cyrus and inclining him to proclaim liberty to them, working upon the spirits of the captives, inclining them to accept the liberty offered them. It was by the spirit of the Lord of hosts that the people were excited and animated to build the temple. Therefore, they are said to be helped by the prophets of God because they, as the Spirit's mouth, spoke to their hearts. It was by the same Spirit that the heart of Darius was inclined to favor and further that good work and that the sworn enemies of it were infatuated in their counsels, or excuse me, that can't be right, infuriated probably, uh, so that they could not hinder it as they designed. Note that the work of God is often carried on a very successfully when yet it is carried out very silently and without the assistance of human force. The gospel temple is built not by might or by power for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but by the spirit of the Lord of hosts whose work, who works on men's consciences is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and thus the excellently, the excellence of the power of God and not of man. Uh, the ways of God then are mysterious Sometimes he works in a grand fashion, other times through very subtle ways. He directs everything. So the course of the most powerful uh, river, the inner workings of a man's mind, he's sovereign over everything. He's for us, and it's easy to forget. It's easy to think that we are the power source. That's kind of, you're catching that from, uh, there's just kind of like two sets of people at this election. There's the annoying people that like post 15 times a day on social media, like Jesus is, God is still king. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. 
you know, telling you like you shouldn't be upset if uh, we were under the rule of very, very evil people, right? Um, so that's annoying. Like, it's okay to be sad when, uh, you know, I don't think the people are like snapping their hands and singing a happy tune on their way to Babylon when they're being pulled away into exile, right? Um, so I don't think we have to be happy if um, so-and-so, you know, he who must not be named, ends up being our president. Um, the flip side, though, is that there's folks that, that will be destroyed, that they will have no joy, and they will be broken down. And uh, those people have put their trust in princes, right? So caring about an election doesn't mean you put your trust in princes. But being crushed by an election almost certainly indicates that. And those are people that have forgot how God works. I mean, think of who Cyrus and Darius is. They're way worse than our two candidates. These are, these are intense people. You know, they put hooks through people's noses as they drug them into captivity. Um, and God moved their hearts. So we want to, we want to turn to God's word, just like the prophets were being brought to the discouraged Jews. And we want to be reminded by the word that the work is the Lord's, and that will uh, give us great confidence and joy in the face of uh, difficulty. Uh, verse 7, he says, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And so our time is uh, full of challenges that seem insurmountable. If you actually understand what, what's happened to our political structures and to our, our culture, you know, like we always tell people like, oh, we'll go to Texas and when they split from the union. Yeah, well, do they have Netflix in, Net, Netflix in Texas? Like is the culture the same culture, right? Like you think there's gonna be a different, you think this is all political structures? It really is a culture war. There's an unholy culture that is powerful. You know, I was thinking about this with my own children this week, is that families are defined by traditions, music, and stories. You know, we have stories that we relate to. And a lot of our kids, like some of my kids will talk to me about Pokemon because we let them watch it. I, I don't, you know, Pokemon's been around forever, but, you know, I was never into it because I was just Way cooler than you guys. Um, but uh, we didn't. Did, did, no, no, don't, 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 don't. Learn, know your place. Um, but uh, <clears throat> nonetheless, nonetheless, it occurred to me that my kids have a bunch of stories that shape them about the world and virtues and all these things that I don't know anything about. They're not shared. And um, our kids uh, are, we're losing them to the world because we're raising them up in the world because we're being lazy a lot of times, right? Because it's easier just to... So the question is, like, what are you going to do? Like, I don't think people are um, being realistic about how difficult the times we might be going in are going to be. And uh, so you get really discouraged. Um, they seem like great mountains. Uh, the, you know, especially for, you know, a lot of us don't have political power here. I, I don't have any. That's for certain, very little. Um, and the condition of society and, and the church, too, is very discouraging. Uh, we're watching the rapid moral decline of our society. It's been exponential, moving quicker and quicker and quicker. Things that, these things have been going on for a long time, right? Hundreds of years. You can, if, you, if you know church history, you can see how you can track this back to the colonies. But it's going, the, the rate is, is stunning. And as someone who studies difficult issues and young people, I'll tell you, some of the things you find out are, 
are truly mind-blowing. Um, there is a crusade in our culture against biblical sexuality, first off. Godly femininity and masculinity is constantly mocked, despised, and attacked. Marriage rates are down. Broken or single-parent homes are common. They're moving towards the majority. That's very significant. Uh, the most wicked forms of sexual immorality are being normalized in all sectors of culture, even right down to the cartoons our little kids watch. And I can't tell you how many times I've come into some cartoon, and there's, you know, Disney's been doing this a long time. You remember Turk from, uh, it's going to be in trouble. Did you see, uh, anyone seen Tarzan? Yeah. What is Turk? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What's going on? What's up with that haircut? That haircut seems to belong to a certain type of people. They were, they've been conditioning us for a long time. That's not a conspiracy theory. People know that. And now we have Disney Plus because we like The Mandalorian. Um, but some of the other shows on that, uh, it's, it's in your face, not hidden at all. Right? Um, so they are normalizing this everywhere and for a long time. Um, People are taught from the youngest age to view themselves as victims. And consequently, they refuse to take responsibility for the outcome of their decisions. Uh, they rather blame it on their dad or on society or on some vague uh, systemic form of oppression. People like to talk about systemic forms of oppression. You know, when I was a poor white kid, it's the way I grew up, like they, they believe in Illuminati, right? I don't know what it is with poor white people, but they're all about the Illuminati, you know, and... <laughs> The ones drop into towers and they've got all sorts of weird conversations. You're like, I think you should get your GED, man. We'll talk about this stuff later. Right? <laughs> like, let's, let's be real. <laughs> let's be real about where we're at. It seems like every group has something, whether it's this systemic racism. There's always some boogeyman. And the boogeyman is very convenient in that all your bad decisions are not your fault. The boogeyman's behind it, right? Every time, every group, you find it. Um, We've become a nation of blame shifters, pity seekers, and excuse makers. And it's no surprise then that drug and alcohol abuse is exploding among all groups right now. Um, in particular, younger women who have been taught to, that success is found in competing with their male peers as opposed to complimenting them. And our government is out of control. It's constantly overspending and overreaching in metals and matters that are far outside the design of our founding documents and more importantly, the design of God because government comes from God. All authority comes from God. And so when God delegates authority, he delegates it for his purpose and you must use it in a way that gives him honor, right? So guys that are heads of their household but uh, use it selfishly are abusing that authority. Um, churches, pastors that think they're, uh, you know, the CEO of their church and they control everything and they're moving outside of the purview of their, of God's, uh, delegation to them. They're abusing their authority. And our government is in things that it never, ever should have ever been in. And it is without a doubt, um, abusing its story. We live under the tyranny of an overbearing administrative state which believes it can close businesses and churches at the whim of the governor, who doesn't know anything. The governor knows about as much about mass and things as you and I do, okay? That's the fact. He's a politician. They're good for very few things, okay? And certainly I'm not going to listen to him on medicine, right? we got people saying different things all over the place. And so on a whim, they can create silly little rules 
like, hey, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., you can't go out. Well, okay, um, I'm not going to. Very few people are going to, especially adults have to work. Why are you doing this? What's the purpose here? There's no one outside. This seems like people are testing the bounds of their authority and see what they can get away with. Like, I don't know how you don't see it that way. And this is the situation we're living in. And Christians, this isn't about us being like hardcore, you know, Jesus Washington, like I saw the spirit descending like a bald eagle from heaven. It's not this sort of like glorifying America in that way. It's that these people are the same people that have been trying to shut down our worship services and chain the word of God. That's the problem. That's why folks like me care. You know, I much rather be ambivalent about politics. I have been majority of my life. That's why people are libertarians, so they can posture that they're better than you. Right? And that's why I was one. But the days being what they are and the reality being what it is, we see that we're, we're in a bad situation, regardless who is in office at the end of January that there are people that think they can shut down churches, right? And these are that's just one of the things. You know, th- then you get to the church. We're seeing churches, even whole denominations, soften their approach to homosexuality. There's something called a gay celibate Christian, right? So it's a guy who or a woman who identifies as gay, and they say, that's just part of who I am, and I can't overcome it. And then there's groups... This is in the PCA, SBC, conservative denominations that say, well, you know, everyone needs an intimate partner, right? So how about this? How about we find another gay celibate Christian and you guys will live together, but you won't have sex, right? Now imagine taking an 18-year-old boy and an 18-year-old girl that like each other and sticking them in an apartment and say, just don't do anything. I mean, like, this is super naive. This is insanity, and so it's, it's this weird backdoor to more or less homosexual unions or homosexual marriage. And that's right in my former denomination, the SBC. And again, these, you can read all this stuff. It's real easy. They're redefining all these things. Um, so not only are they soft-pedaling their approach to homosexuality, they have women who are more or less function as pastors in their congregation. I wish I had a verse as clear on women being in leaders for baptism, Right? People like, we don't have a verse as clear on baptism. Baptist or paedo-baptist, it doesn't really matter. Like scripture, you couldn't ask it to be clear. Women may not have authority over men. Well, that's because of culture. And then Paul keeps going on. It's not about the culture. It's about the created order. Well, what about sin? Oh, look, it's before the fall. Like it's watertight. And that's why it's such a litmus test on whether people respect God's word. Because if they can take something that's like watertight, and just blow right past it. What can you, what will they not blow past, right? You know, and so whole denominations are doing this and, and pastors that we used to trust are getting themselves entangled in this stuff. We, we're seeing churches close their doors on Sundays for months and months because the government told them that they must neglect the fellowship of the saints. And in some cases, they, the government didn't even tell them. It's like they're eager to shut their doors or something, you know? It's, it's, been, it's been wild to watch folks do that. Um, and finally, when they do reopen their doors, they require that all members must play along with the facade of this pandemic. Like, I'm not saying that COVID's not real. I'm, people have died. People have gotten sick. But I, where's the bodies? Where's the stack? How is this a pandemic by any logical standard? 
You know, uh, so they they want us to operate from a posture of fear. And if you don't go along with it, they shame you as if you hate your neighbor. This is happening all across America. And so that's just a few of the mountains before us. Like, it's like five minutes. We could go on and on and get into crazy detail. You know, everyone, you should, we all should be scared about them sending kids home for school. You should understand that that might be a backdoor to getting control over homeschooling, right? Like the, really wild things are going right now. And, and if you read the wrong news, so you can either read, if you read the MSM, everything's wonderful. Our Messiah Joe Biden is going to lead us into the promised land. If you read that, but if you read the wrong, like, you know, right wing things, like there's no hope. It's all over. Right. Um, but we are Christians, and it is discouraging to see once great institutions reduce to smoldering piles of ash. And the West is in a rough state. And the challenges are huge. But God can turn a mountain into a plain, right? It's exactly what he told um, the, the, the Jews. See that mountain? I can level it. God can take a woman like Sarah with a dead womb and make her the mother of a nation. God can take a few fishermen and a tax collector and start a movement that turns the world upside down. The nation of Israel and the true Israel had small beginnings, and so it is in times of restoration. They have small beginnings. And you can become discouraged as you look back on former glorious times. Some of the groups that have been on this, there's some Christian groups that are really weird. Patriarchal groups are strange. There's a strange, almost fetish about the American Revolution, like they'll dress their kids up in these weird little apple pies. I don't know if, it's just, it's a weird group. There's folks that, I call them LARPers, um, live action role playing. They're like stuck in another age and um, they're not here. And they, they and this, when I, I was in Calvary Chapel, which I'm very thankful for that movement, but Calvary Chapel, like everything that mattered happened during the Jesus movement, the hippie revivals of the 70s and 80s, sometimes called the hate Ashbury revival. And you're like, well, you know, God is still in his people. He's still doing things today. And so we, we can't get stuck in some glorious past. We have to look forward. And that's a theme that repeatedly comes up in the post-exilic books. Take, for example, Ezra, um, chapter 3. Now, when the builders had laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, and with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So the young people, who knew nothing of that old glorious time, they saw a promising future. And the old people grieved over what had been lost. And so it's important that we're careful to fall into the former group, what God is doing. We, we don't want to be people that whine and whine. You know, it's just I, that people on social media are so, ay, ay, ay. I see what people have been trying to get me to stop for a long time. But 
it did help me get where I'm at. So whatever. Um, let's not be whiners and complainers. Let's build and, and do something, right? Um, listen to Haggai uh, 2. <clears throat> God says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, uh, governor of Judah, and to Josh, Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, uh, I can't talk tonight, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you uh, saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So they finally build this temple, and it's not even impressive. So not just that they lay the foundation and build the temple, and folks aren't impressed by it. He continues, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So what if I told you that this wasn't speaking about the temple, not that current one, and not even the one that was made during the time of Jesus? That temple's gone. It's destroyed. It was uh, definitely destroyed in 70 AD, forever. It's never going to be rebuilt. Um, he's speaking about the temple of his people. In 1 Peter, it says, in coming to Jesus as to a living stone, which has been re- rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the destruction of the temple ended up being a good thing. It's strange how God so often moves his people forward through what appears to be failure or disaster. The cross is a great example, obviously, uh, but there are many more. You can think of the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that followed it. Remember, they, they martyr Stephen, and then the persecution continues on into the church, and it scatters all the people in the surrounding areas. And then it says they went out preaching the gospel. I think, uh, I think COVID will end up being a blessing to the church. It's, been, it's a painful blessing, but I think it's forcing people to lay their cards on the table. Some people have not done well with the hand they've chosen to play, and other people have stepped up. But I think it's shaking the church. Uh, the whole George Floyd Black Lives Matter farce, too, that's been going on, that has also been ca- causing Christians to decide, uh, will, you, uh, will you posture yourself as, like, you know, this uh, white knight that loves all these black people and that you never know at all and shame people for their whiteness? Whatever, what is whiteness? And, and white privilege so far for me has, it's been disappointing. You know, it's not, it's not been what I expected from it. So um, one would even think Jewish privilege would be much better. But so far, it seems like you just kind of got to do it yourself and depend on your community. But uh, it's, these things are good for the church. It's, it's causing us to, what do we believe how do we work through these? Some of these things are very difficult. Uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I was kind of hoping the whole COVID thing would be over and we could start the church and say, I would have never done that. But now, like, now I got to put my money where my mouth is and, and say, I'm not wearing a mask. It's not happening. I'm not doing it, you know, and it's, it's going to be hard. So there's a lot of challenges, but I think it, it, it forces us to go back to the scripture and forces us to trust, uh, 
the Lord and think through these things, that the persecution that came from the martyrdom of Jesus led to the gospel being sent out and the eventual conversion of the apostle Paul, right? Jesus dying on the cross. Satan thought it was a victory. It wasn't, right? It was a victory for us because he rose from the dead. We have to have spiritual eyes. We often are trying to preserve the past while God has sent a greater future or has a greater future in store for us. We struggle with this because he likes to do things his way, and his ways often are very humble, small, and unconventional. Uh, Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro through the earth. It is easy to despise small things, seeds, investments, savings. All these things start small. Weight loss, right? The hardest part about losing weight is working out really hard for a week or two, and then you get on the scale and you're like, I gain weight? You know, that sort of commitment, uh, the little things, right? Spiritual discipline. Or, or, or discipline your kids. Like a kid throws a fit and the parent disciplines them and then the kid throws a, a fit again. And like, what do I do? Well, you, you got to keep doing it, right? You don't just do it one time. You don't just pay bills one time. Churches and denominations and the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God, all these things that, that God did, these things start small and he grows them. And we often wither under seemingly unsurmountable challenges. And that's because we view our, our power as a primary resource. If that's the case, then the challenges really are insurmountable. However, God's spirit is at work in his people to accomplish his purposes. There's no such thing as a unsurmountable challenge for God. Uh, therefore, we should soldier forward in faith, knowing that the battle is the Lord and often pleases him to accomplish his will through works that have a very small beginning. So brethren, uh, don't despise the small day of small things. I, I don't think you, you all do. That's wonderful. But don't worry about these mountains either. Uh, don't whine in the ash heap. Build with joy and confidence. Big things have small beginnings. It's the way God works, especially in people uh, periods of restoration and renewal. And it appears we are living in such a time. That's why I'm so excited about 2020. Really, it is an incredible time to be alive. The things that are happening now are unbelievable. Um, it is a wonderful opportunity to uh, stand up uh, for God, uh, to confess his name before men, because uh, he has died for us and rose from the grave and he speaks our name to the Father, right? It's a wonderful opportunity uh, to, to do that. And people are questioning things in a new way. It's kind of like after 9-11. You remember after 9-11? Everyone was a patriot for a couple weeks. Um, <laughs> But a lot of people really did get saved in that time. You know, I know a lot of folks out of uh, New York that uh, came to faith, like real faith. The churches were full for uh, a good year. And I think this is a time that God is uh, working in people and purifying his church. Hey.